continue on in chapter one. Uh, I'll spend some time just doing a little bit of a recap. So if you weren't here or if you've forgotten, um, it just might jog your memory of kind of just stuff we talked about briefly. Um, we ended up finishing off uh, last time in at the end of chapter, or pardon me, verse 11. So when we get going this morning, we're going to take it up in verse 12. Now, last time I talked out of Timothy, um, I said Timothy was a teenager when he first met Paul. Uh, his family lived in Lystra. He was a Galatian. His mom and grandma, uh, they were faithful Jewish women. Uh, they had taught him uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And when Paul came to Lystra for the first time, that's when they became believers. And then Paul came back a second time and he invited Timothy to come with him. And that began this, this discipleship of Timothy under Paul um, really for the next 13 years. He was discipled. Um, I mentioned that Timothy was very active in Paul's ministry. That Paul refers to him as his fellow worker. I think that's important because it tells us something about Paul, that he was humble, that he was about team building, and that Timothy was a trusted and integral part of Paul's minister, ministry work. I also talked about how Paul was frequently on the move. And the, those that worked with him, that were with him, like Timothy, would have been on the move as well. Now the places where Timothy ministered um, were consistently places where Paul had just been or Paul was on his way to. This going ahead or staying behind uh, was apparently a distinctive characteristic of Timothy's ministry. And what was Timothy, Timothy's ministry? What, does it look, what did it look like? Well, he was an encourager. He was a supporter. His role was often about keeping the church on track, keeping Jesus the main thing. So we know why Timothy is left in Ephesus. According to 1 Timothy 1.3, it was to stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. He was there to correct the problems that had worked and were working their way into what was being taught there. And he was there to establish a strong leadership, a leadership that would be equipped to take over when he left. I mentioned last time that Ephesus was dark and it was a difficult place and the Timothy had reached this breaking point he was ready to throw in the towel and walk away from that church he was under personal attack and false teachers were taking these believers out of their liberty in Jesus Christ and their freedom in Jesus Christ and moving them back into this bondage of legalism. And just a quick point here, there's a difference between legalism and just having high standards. We can often uh, accuse people with high standards as being kind of legalist. But that's not the case. 
having standards, high standards, is a good thing. Being obedient is a good thing. But having standards and keeping them doesn't make us a legalist. What happens is we step into legalism when we think that the things that we do are going to make us right before God. But it can be a very slippery slope. High standards are great, but the moment we start to compare ourselves to others, and we can do that, who might be, we, we might see as having a lower set of standards, we can fall into a trap of feeling, starting to feel like we're superior. We can start to think we're better in God's eyes. And maybe for some, have earned a bit of our place in heaven. Now back to this letter from Paul. It was the best thing Paul could do for Timothy other than being there in person. The letter is kind of like that. And parts of it are here to strengthen Timothy. Parts are here to teach Timothy. Parts are here to help him establish what the church should ultimately look like. But it's for you and me as well. We get to read this part of scripture and hopefully make some application to our own lives. And Paul starts this letter with three things that are in constant need for a church and its leadership as a whole. Grace, mercy, and peace. And we discussed last time why they're so important. You can't lead and you can't go out and minister with having that grace, mercy, and peace carried along with you. And we finished off talking about the law and how it reveals our need for our Savior. Romans 8, 111. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says then at the end of verse 11 that he was entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God and Paul knew that he had a responsibility to preserve and guard and teach that gospel and not just in the easy places. And he wants Timothy to see that he has that same responsibility and accountability to God. So let's read verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his servants. Uh, pardon me, uh, to his service. You know, as I read or read through letters like this, because this is more of a personal letter to Timothy, I always kind of, I, I picture things in my mind. And I picture the writer being there in person. So for me, I see Paul kind of sitting across from Timothy, speaking to him one-on-one. -on -one. And all around, I picture this dim background. In, in, and in this dim background is this Ephesus church. And us, listening and hopefully learning. And here at this point, Paul reminds us where our Christian strength comes from, where our strength to minister comes from, where the strength to serve comes from. And it comes from Jesus. 
It's so simple. Yet it's something we seem to all need to be reminded of on a daily basis. I know I do. Every day. And why do you think that is? What is it about me? What is it about any of us that we can be so determined? And I got to tell you, sometimes I'm pretty determined to stand and act on our own strength. And maybe determined isn't necessarily the right word or the best word here. Um, determined almost makes it sound like we were aware that we're doing it. When most of the time, I don't think we are. I'm not. I usually figure it out after the fact. You know what, I was, I was brought up really to depend on me, depend on myself, trained by a secular world to be independent, to be self-made, to be self-reliant. So for me, when I became a Christian, you know what, I just naturally go back to that original programming I have to stand on my own two feet and do whatever needs to be done, even if it's God's work. And I can make excuses. You know, why would God want to get involved in the little details in my life? I can have the little details. And I think, you know what? God wants a take charge guy. He doesn't want a whiny little wuss. But the truth of the matter is, whenever I have ever, whenever I have stood, on my own strength. I have inadvertently excluded God from the situation. And the results have either been failure for me or for someone else that's caught in the crossfire. Now, do you know what the Bible says about self-effort? <laughs> in Psalm 60, verse 11, it says, the help of man is useless. Ouch. So self-help is really kind of out. First Samuel 2.9 2, says, For by strength no man shall prevail. And Psalm 33.16 says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Wise words. But that doesn't seem to stop me from going it alone. But like I said, I do get it figured out eventually, but not till I left a little carnage behind me. If I want lasting victory, I know, I know that I need Jesus. His strength will prevail, or mine will fail. Because it comes with wisdom. It comes with patience that we're going to talk about. And it comes with that grace, mercy, and peace that I mentioned. The very things Paul is seeking for Timothy as he writes this letter. And when we talk about victory, I don't mean victory from. Victory doesn't mean victory from. God gives victory through. Through the suffering. Through the hardship. Timothy was in a difficult place. He was in a difficult place physically emotionally, spiritually, and he, need, he needed to hear these words of guidance 
and encouragement from Paul. He needed to find victory. And you know what? You might be here this morning in need of that. You might be here this morning in need of victory. Maybe you're here feeling beaten down. Maybe you're here and, and you feel you're in the battle that you just aren't winning, no matter how hard you might be trying. Well, you know what? You're not alone. I'm not alone. The Bible is full of the battle-weary. And Timothy is just one little example. Paul's message here for him and for us as well is step away from your strength. There's no real victory in it if we don't. And let Jesus go to work. Let him work with you, with me, and through you and I to fight that good fight. And one other thing, feeling beaten is not a loss. We think it is sometimes. We feel like it is sometimes, but it's not a loss. It should be our rallying cry. Fact is, when we feel beaten, we finally, finally do the right thing and we call for help. Call for that help we should have sought right, right from the start. You know, I look at the world right now and there's this epidemic of panic and fear and hopelessness and desperation. They, the world, are seeking answers. They're seeking relief. They're seeking wisdom. They're seeking a savior. And they're trying to do it all by the power of their own hands, in their own might. And it's for nothing. It's for naught. And if you and I go through our Christian walk and neglect the, the, the strength of Christ in these everyday battles that we're going to have, we're going to find ourselves just as hopeless and just as powerless, powerless as they are. So be like Paul. Seek the Lord for strength. And then be thankful because he's right there to give it. Now Paul goes on to say here that he was judged or counted as faithful. Some translations say trustworthy. Paul was counted as faithful or trustworthy by Jesus and appointed to this service. What does that mean? It means that Jesus invested in Paul because he knew that Paul would be faithful. And you know what? When I read that, I can't help but wonder if Jesus counts me as faithful. Hopefully, maybe, most of the time, we all know that the value of being faithful. We know the value of being trustworthy. We teach it to our children. We hire employees with those characteristics, or we try. We want our friends, our co-workers, even perfect strangers to see those qualities in us. Why? 
because being found trustworthy and faithful by others is honorable. It shows we have great character, and it means that we're going to be given greater opportunities. We're going to be given greater responsibilities. So if it's such an honor to be found trustworthy and faithful by the people around us, by our peers, how much more do you think it is to be found with those characteristics by God himself? So I'm going to ask you this morning to just take it and think about, as a Christian, do you think that you are trustworthy? Do you think Jesus counts you as faithful? It's not a it's not a question anybody can answer for you. It's not anybody a question anybody can ask, uh, answer for me. Jesus can answer it. I can't. But I wanted to share something that might help with that answer. Uh, it certainly helps me. Jesus says in Matthew. Uh, 22.14, that many are called, but few are chosen. That call is what goes out to every person that hears the gospel. The chosen are those who sincerely respond to that call. And if you're here today and you have responded to that call, which I'm going to assume the most of you have, or all of you have, it means you have repented of your sins and you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. And if you've done that, you are of the chosen. That's powerful. That all by itself should sure stir something up in all of us. That if I'm chosen... Lord, if I'm chosen, I want to be faithful. I should want to be faithful. And you know what? Being faithful, it doesn't require me to quit my job. There's no hidden spiritual quota I got to come up with. I don't have to be a Paul. I don't have to be a Timothy. I don't have to be smart. And that's pretty thankful for me. I don't have to be talented or gifted, again. Being faithful is pretty simple. And the best part is it can happen right here, right now, where God has me. And it's important to note here, you know what? Paul doesn't say he was faithful, and God says, oh, I recognize that. I recognize you're faithful. He said, Jesus judged me faithful. Paul, formerly named Saul, that hateful persecutor of the church, was not good enough to serve God. And yet God judged or decided Paul would be faithful in serving him. In other words, God made Paul faithful. God made Paul faithful trustworthy you and I each of us start our walk as a Christian with what 
Simple faith. Faith is belief. It's the assurance in our hearts and minds of God's word. Or as it says in Hebrews, of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. All the things that God has done, the seen and the unseen. Faithfulness is living in accord with that truth. In other words, faith leads us to faithfulness. It's the starting point, and it's Christ that makes us faithful. And it was Jesus that gave Paul that the strength he needed to act on his faith and turn it into that faithfulness. And Paul knows it, and he thanks God for it. So I think, you know what? For me, maybe for all of us, we need to pray daily for Jesus to give us the strength we need to act on our faith. Not to just be the chosen few, but to live as the chosen few. To have the strength to minister in the hard places. To have the strength to minister to the hard cases. And pray not just for faith, but to be faithful today, tomorrow. Trusting in Christ for our strength. And being trustworthy for him. You know, it happens right where we are. Whatever we are given... Whatever we are asked to do, that prayer says, Lord, strengthen me and make me faithful. Make me a trustworthy man or woman for you today. If you give me much, help me to do much. If you give me a little, help me to do at least something. And Lord, today if I get up and I feel like I have been given nothing, if you're sitting here today saying, you know what, I feel like I've been given nothing, Lord, I just pray you open my eyes and help me to see that that is not the case, that you are the God who gives. Whether it's one talent or many. You know, you might sit here today and think that God has passed you by, that he hasn't really blessed you with anything useful, but I can tell you he has. There's always something from his hand that he entrusts to you and I to steward for him. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't he trust us? Why wouldn't he give us that? We are of the chosen few. So let's let him use us for his purpose. Great or small, you know, Susan and I pray together pretty much every morning and we pretty much always pray, Lord, whether you want to use me today for something great for you or something small for you today, I don't care. I used to want the great things. But now it's like, you know what? Even if it's something small today, use me and be glorified through it. You and I have kingdom resources to draw from right at our fingertips. All we need to do is ask and we will find, seek, 
and it will be given. And as we invest in Christ, we invest in his kingdom. And subsequently, more is going to be given to invest. Psalm 34.10 says that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Start seeking. Now you might be thinking that's all fine and dandy, Ken, but I have lived a pretty bad life. A life that I'm sure precludes me from being used by God for anything meaningful. I have too much history. I got too much shame. Well, let's listen to what Paul says. Verses 13 and 14, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know what? You and I can fill in whatever our own sin testimony is here. Paul was a blasphemer and a persecutor. I know I have my own. I'm sure you have your own. This was the guy that watched and approved of Stephen's execution. He went on to ravage the church, yet he says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The NIV says, poured out on me abundantly with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This Paul, with all his sin and his rude, disrespectful, disrespectful disobedience, is shown this exceedingly abundant gift of grace, and the result is faith and love. And this grace that w which was imparted to Paul wasn't just based on his word. wasn't just based on Paul saying, oh, this was done for me. It also manifested itself for everybody to see. How? By the transformation, this, this recreation of Paul from who he was to this man of faith and love that he became. He went from a product of hate and persecution to a product of Jesus. A product remade in faith and love. And if Paul can become this new creation, what he's saying here is so can you, Timothy, when you're under this stress. So can anyone. That's the point. So stop believing the enemy. Stop letting the enemy run the show. In Christ, you and I are that new creation, and we need to believe that. And then we need to start living like that. Paul says in verse, verse 13, he says, Formerly I was. I think those are two strong words. Formerly I was. In Christ, we all say those same words. Or actually pre-Christ, we can say those things. As a product of Christ who lives in you and me, we can now exclaim with excitement, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And I am part of the chosen few. And that's pretty amazing. 
you know what, in a couple of days, we get to start a new year. Let's take that truth into the new year. Let's pray for faithfulness and see what Jesus can do. Verse 15 says, this, this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I can't really put into words for me how, I, how important that verse is. Paul doesn't say that Jesus came to save some sinners, but he came to save all sinners only thing that can disqualify anyone from that gift of grace is the rejection of the Lamb of God as our Savior. That's it. And it brings me to my favorite verse. <laughs> if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, the heart, for, for, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The point Paul's making here, uh, which I think I can say with some certainty, is for these false teachers in Ephesus. And the point is that we don't need anything added or subtracted from the pure gospel message. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that saves Remember, this is the church described in Revelation that eventually lost its first love. The truth is, if a church becomes distracted, if we become distracted, if the teaching becomes a watered-down message with Jesus as kind of an afterthought, if false doctrine is introduced, then the, this exceedingly abundant grace that's given through Christ becomes watered down as well. It becomes weakened. It becomes altered. Which then means Jesus is watered down and weakened and altered. Which means he becomes less important to the message and then becomes less important to us and to our hearts. And the result will inevitably be that our love for him will begin to grow cold. Why? Well, because... How can we be in love with someone that we don't have any reverence for or respect for, that we spend no time with and ultimately have no real need for? Timothy's role in this church would come down to a matter of life and death for these believers. Either believe and stand on the truth, the truth, or perish. It's no wonder Paul wanted him to stick around. Verse 16 says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What's he talking about? Well, I think he's saying in un no uncertain terms is that if we truly put our trust in Jesus as Savior, if you truly do that, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what I have done. We can be the foremost of sinners. 
and Jesus will save us. And then he will use that redemption for his glory, for a testimony. Jesus will take the worst of the worst and he'll transform them right in front of our eyes just so that we can go, wow, that's amazing. And it's encouraging. And there's something else that jumps out in that verse for me. Paul talks about Christ's perfect patience. Something I don't possess even close to having. I think the older I get, the less patient I get at times. If there had been anyone, anyone, that the risen Jesus could have rightfully poured out his wrath on, it was Paul, or rather Saul. Jesus had every right to take Saul out. And I'm pretty sure the early church would have been thrilled by it. But thankfully, among all the other righteous attributes of Jesus, we find this perfect patience. And we should be ecstatic. We should be overjoyed that that is a part of who he is. That he will wait patiently. That he will bide his time to intervene in the lives of the unsaved. Just the right time, just the right place, the Lord will act. And yet... Not everyone is saved in the end. We know that. But perfect patience gives us hope for our lost. Those people maybe in our families, our friends, people we know, that perfect patience gives us something to hang on to for them. There's always a part of me, though, that sits ready to be taken home. I'm rapture ready. I'm ready to go. Tomorrow, honestly, bring it on. But you know what? I know that deep down in my heart, sometimes really deep in my heart, that the longer Jesus is patient, the more souls he's going to touch and bring back to God. That needs to be important to me because it's important to him. And I see that as kind of a litmus test for me as a believer. Because there are some people, if I'm perfectly honest as I sit up here today, I just assume we're left out. And I'm sure Paul would have been on that list for some people. Just imagine for a minute, you are one of the new converts to Christianity around the time of Paul's conversion. He likely would have persecuted someone you, know, you knew in his old, old life perhaps even to their death. Perhaps he jailed your wife or your husband, separated you from your children. And then one day, this man that you have come to hate in your heart for the things he's done, the things that have torn apart your life and your family, and he walks through those doors into your church. And then you learn that Jesus has personally called him has spoken to him. And your faith says, 
you got to forgive him. And not only forgive him, but actually listen to him and learn from him. And it's those times in our lives just like that that we have to seek the transforming power that was displayed in Paul for ourselves, for me, to move from hate or strong dislike into what Paul refers to in verse 14 as the grace of our Lord overflowing for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Because I can tell you, it ain't possible without Jesus. We can fake it, but only for a little bit of time. And even with him, it's a struggle sometimes. We have to seek that supernatural uh, power in these cases because it's beyond the natural. So here we are. Paul has laid out all of this for Timothy. He's laid it all out for this church in Ephesus. He's laid it out for you and he's laid it out for me. Paul summarized his life. He has demonstrated and talked about God's grace in his life. And I think in doing so, he has brought to a place of just worship. What God has done for him, who he has become, and what he has been honored to do for his Savior, I think just wells up in Paul, like it does in us at times. And he goes on, and he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what? We should be deeply moved by the greatness of our God. Even when we're at our wit's end, when our circumstances seem overwhelming, just like Timothy here, because Paul's testimony, encouragement, and spontaneous worship of God, Timothy has all the reasons, really, he needs to remain here in Ephesus. He could and should stay where, there, pardon me, when he considers this greatness of God. This great God is worthy of all Timothy's service. He's worthy of all our service. And he can and will empower us for the victories we need. Verse 18, we're almost done, guys. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare. Paul had raised Timothy up, discipled him for 13 years, trained him up, developed a bond that was like this equivalent of a father-son relationship. He invested in him in every way to train him up to be strong and to be a faithful man of God. The idea then is that in the absence of Paul, Timothy would be able to stand strong in Christ on his own. That's good discipleship. But now Timothy is coming to a crossroad, I think. And Paul is tough on him. He says, this charge I entrust to you. But he's loving. And what he's saying is, don't quit, Timothy. Stay and fight the good fight. 
He's given Timothy all the reasons to stay, and now it's up to Timothy. It's not a salvation issue. It's a battle issue. And it's one I believe we're all going to face or have faced at some point in our Christian walk. And it's either to turn and walk away or turn to God and wait in. There's no question that Timothy is, is um, needed right where he is. And there's no question that his ministry was blessed. But even with all that, there can come a time when we question God's calling on our lives. Times when we're under attack by the enemy, can't see a way out from all the pressure, except maybe, you know what, I'm packing my bags and I'm out of here. Even Paul had his struggles. You can read Romans 7. To say that Paul didn't have his own struggles would imply that he was perfect, and we know he's not, or was not. What Paul had was the personal experiences that allowed him to speak to Timothy with understanding, with empathy. Paul knew better than anyone what Timothy was going through. Paul was a living example of sin to salvation, from self-made to Christ-made. He was an example of what it looks like to fight the good fight. He was an example for Timothy of what we read in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, Timothy, for those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul reminds Timothy of all these things and reminds him that he's under the guidance of a patient, protective, grace-abounding God who was blessed and approved of his ministry. But Timothy has to have the enduring faith that God is in control, just like we do. That God will guide him as he continues to seek and serve him. And secondly, verse nine, 19 starts off, holding faith and a good conscience. He's saying, Timothy, you've got to have a good conscience. Why? Because Timothy's at war. And if Timothy does not conduct himself rightly, the enemy will have just one more weapon to use against him, one more reason to attack him. So what is a good conscience? It isn't just a conscience that approves us, but one that approves us because we've been doing what is right. It's connected to good conduct. When we lack good conduct, we don't have a lot of solid footing to stand on when we're dealing with others. The uh, do as I say, not, a, not as I do uh, method isn't the best way to go generally in life, but it certainly doesn't work when you're trying to minister. Verse 19 and 20 finishes us off. Says, Paul says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's referring to these 
these two people, I guess in this church, that Timothy is struggling with, who don't hold to the faith with a steadfast mind and a heart. They live a life that's offensive to God. They have bad conduct. Those kind of people, Paul says, they suffer loss or shipwreck of their faith and they fall from the truths of the gospel. These people, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, he has handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does that mean? Well, from other New Testament passages, we can surmise that he did this by putting them outside the church and into the world, which is the devil's domain. The punishment here was a removal of the protection of, or of protection and not an infliction of evil on them. And what I see here for me is a great warning to those who, who don't see it necessary to uh, attend church, people that don't see value of, of coming together with the saints on a regular basis. The truth is, God's power is manifested when we come together in praise and worship of our Lord. I know you know that. I know you felt that. The Bible says, for where two or, more or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Hebrews 10.24 says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to, to meet together as is the habit of of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near when we come together we need to be stirring one another up in all the goodness of the Lord and by putting these two out of church Paul is putting them into Satan's world where they aren't going to have the protections and the encouragements and the spiritual benefits of the body of Christ And hopefully, as Paul points out, these two will learn not to blaspheme. So Paul has laid out a number of reasons for Timothy to stay right where he is and continue his work for the Lord. And he gives you and I reasons to continue our good fight. That good fight that we have against those who come against us. The spiritual battles we might be facing, maybe with family maybe with co-workers, maybe with uh, a neighbor, I don't know. Whatever, wherever those battles are taking place, we need to rely on Christ's strength and God's grace and remain in our own Ephesus. Why? Well, firstly, people need the truth. Because a hard place to minister isn't a reason to quit. Thirdly, because God uses unworthy people. And fourth, because we serve a great God. Five, because we're in a battle and surrender isn't an option. And lastly, if it's not you or me, 
than who?